we are this summer uh, taking a half dozen weeks or so to talk about prayer, and uh, <clears throat> we, we, we believe here that uh, unless the Lord builds the house, we who labor do so in vain. We long to see God work. We long to see Him work in our lives and through the church in the midst of the community, and so we want to be a praying people seeking from God all that we need. We started the summer in the Lord's Prayer, uh, and last week we started with the first half, and appropriate today to remember that the prayer starts with our Father, and that prayer is a relationship. It's a relationship to God as our Father, that we should approach Him that way, and that Jesus taught us when He said, when you pray, pray like this. Say, Father, come to Him, knowing that he loves you uh, as a child. And so we looked last week at some of those things, the glory of his name, the coming of his kingdom, and the obedience to his will. So we come this morning to the second half, but I'm going to read starting in verse 7 once again through the uh, end of verse 15. Hear then the word of God. Jesus says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The Word of God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We have gathered because you have called us to worship. Father, we have gathered as your people. We have come to you to give you our hearts, to give you our worship, to acknowledge that you are God. But we sit now at your feet to hear you speak, that you would speak into our hearts and into our lives. You would tell us the truth about ourselves and about you, that you would teach us to pray that we may pray well, that we may pray with all of our hearts, genuinely. Come near. Teach us to pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. The Lord's Prayer is a little bit like the Ten Commandments in the sense that there are almost two tables. If you've ever heard that about the Ten Commandments, the first four address issues that concern who God is. So the first four, you shall have no other gods before me. You'll make no graven images, and they'll um, not take the Lord's name in vain, and you'll honor and keep his Sabbath, and they all have to do with our relationship to God. And then the rest of them have to do, they're still underneath those. They all flow from and express those, everything that comes, because we have no other God, and because we would not take his name on ourselves in vain, that we would be the people described in the next six commandments, like him. Loving life and truth and faithfulness as those commands unfold. And so the Lord's Prayer is a little bit like that. It opens up as he teaches us to pray. We pray in accordance in a similar pattern to the commandments that were given. We start with God. Everything starts with who he is. 
He is God and there is no other. And we, we have become His children in Christ. So we come and we pray, Our Father, hallowed be Your name. Glory to Your name. Honor to Your name. Your kingdom come. Praying our kingdom out. Your will be done. Praying our will out. Not my will, but Your will be done. You know, in those prayers, they start in our lives before we will see it fulfilled around the world. And that is, the prayer is bigger than us. But it starts with us. Your kingdom come here in my life and in my heart. Your will be done here. Your name be honored and glorified here. And then around the world, may we see the gospel prosper and the kingdom advance. And hearts everywhere bow the knee to the Lord Jesus and the coming of your kingdom and the glory of your name. But he shifts, doesn't he, pretty abruptly from these lofty things. And he starts talking about praying about food, eating. It's an it's a abrupt shift, but it does give us, and we have to understand, as Jesus gives us his prayer, this prayer is about God's priorities. You know, that you were to say, you know, if you were to ask God, God, what should I be praying about? <laughs> what should I be, you know, because sometimes we don't know what to pray, do we? Close your eyes, you start praying, five minutes later, you're not sure what you should be praying for. Well, he's given us an outline here, hasn't he, of his own priorities. These are the things you should be praying about. These are the things on the top of my list. If I were to give you the top, you know, six or seven things, depending on how you count these, right? And here's what you should be praying for. And, and as he turns the tables to applying and expressing what was true in the first ones and other ones when we come into his kingdom where his will is done, that, that, that bread and eating are expressions of the glory of his name to his people as he cares for us and provides for us. Bread is a simple and mundane request. Give us daily bread. But it reveals God's heart for the concern for our most basic and material needs, doesn't it? If, if we can pray for bread, you know, what, what should we not be praying for? You know, the most, the most basic and fundamental things of our days to be praying that he would provide for us these core human needs. Though it has to be in one way acknowledged that on the surface here, that prayer hardly seems relevant to many of us. To pray for bread. To most Americans. How many of you are worried about your next meal and whether you're going to get lunch? You're already thinking about it, admit it. You know where you're going. Either something in a crock pot at home or you've already got your restaurant picked out. Like you're not worried about your, you know what I mean? It's not the kind of thing that we're daily concerned about. I spent the summer in India. We prayed about our food every day. That it wouldn't make us sick. Right? That we could find the right food because some of the food made us sick. And so we needed things we could eat. You know, we scoured the cities for peanut butter. You know, because bread, anyway. So any, there are many parts of the world still, through history and in now, where this prayer is a very serious prayer. The working poor, who, who don't have the bank, you know, who are wondering how they are going to provide for their children. So it is a serious prayer for very many believers in that respect, and I think it should be a serious prayer for us as well. But we have to dig a little bit to... See how it shapes our hearts and our praying. There's a lot of debate about whether bread in this prayer is actually a physical loaf of bread. Is he praying literally for bread? 
wheat and yeast and the whole business? And the answer is yes. Most commentators, you know, you read, and I looked at quite a few to see where they go, and they're, they're all over the map. Some of them are saying it's just material bread, and it's bread, it's food, and it's basic, and yeah, you pray for it. You know, some of them are saying it's bread, and it's material provision, it's that, but oh, it is so much more. And some will go beyond that and say all three of these prayer requests, the bread, the, the forgiveness, and, and the leading and deliverance are all spiritual prayers. And so that the bread speaks to our spiritual need as much as it does our physical needs. And I believe all of those are true. But when we pray for bread, I think it would help you if you went with Luther a little bit on this one. Martin Luther, in a shorter catechism, when he's answering the question, what did the Lord mean when he said, you know, give us our daily bread? And he says this, it includes everything that has to do with the support and needs of the body, such as food, but then also drink, and clothing, and shoes, and a house, and a home, land, maybe animals, or a way to, to make a living, and, and money, and goods, or a devout husband, or a devout wife, or devout children, and, and co-workers, and a devout and faithful rulers, a good government, good weather, peace, health, self-control, good reputation, good friends, faithful neighbors, and the like. In other words, everything that pertains to Lord providing for us a life that is pleasing to you and the basics and the needs that we have. So as we ask for bread, it stands in the place of all of our basic needs, all of those things we would long for God to provide for us that we may live well before him. But it also speaks, I think, to our spiritual needs. We're told that man will not, shall not live by bread alone. Right? But by every word that comes from the mouth of God, and there is this sense that we feed, we eat just like bread is food for the body, the word of God that we are in this morning is food for the souls, and we need daily to feast on spiritual things, spiritual nourishment, the words of God. In John chapter 6, Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees, some of the spiritual leaders, and they start, end up talking about Moses and how Moses provided manna in the wilderness. And, and then Jesus says to them in the midst of that conversation, in that context, manna in the wilderness, he says, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread. The spiritual bread. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me in faith and trust will not hunger. And so as Jesus says, God, give us our daily bread, in many ways is he not offering himself to us in the fullness of his teaching, understanding our need, our need for spiritual food. It's much, perhaps more than the physical, but the physical, when we're strong physically, then we can pursue those spiritual things. They go together, but he confares himself quite explicitly to manna, doesn't he? Manna was daily bread, remember? Showed up every day, once a day. You only got to gather it that day. It was daily bread. You sought it that day, and if you tried to keep it for the next day, it rotted. It wasn't good. You couldn't carry it over. You had to go back. Every day, you had to go back for more, right? He, he, you were dependent upon God's provision every day, and I think that is a picture in this prayer as we pull out that whole bread that we would know ourselves dependent on his provision spiritually. Jesus is the bread of life, and life flows from him to us as we abide in Christ daily, drawing life from him like a branch from a vine. As we think about applying this need for God's provision of sustenance, material and spiritual, I want us to think about a few things because he teaches us to daily ask and to seek. Why do we do it daily? 
Why not twice a week? You know, Tuesdays and Thursdays. You know, and every other Friday. I don't know. Why is it? It's daily that he drives us to himself. And so whether you have a very conscious need of your, for daily bread or not, one of the reasons I believe that he does that is he wants us, every time we pray, and to do it daily, that we would be acknowledging one way and another, whether it's that loaf of physical, literal bread, or whatever it is you're planning on for lunch, or whatever all of our provision and need is, he wants us every day to acknowledge that every good gift comes from him. Because we forget. We don't live in that awareness all the time. And he wants us to. He wants us to live in the awareness that every good and perfect gift comes from our Father. And the danger is we have... The temptation is pride and what the Greeks called hubris, which is a pride and arrogance. It's a being full of ourselves. Because we tend to think that we have what we have and we can afford to go out to lunch and to do the things that, that we do and that we have that long list that Luther gave to us. We think that we have all of that, that I, that I am what I am because of me and that I have what I have because of me. I've worked hard. I'm just the kind of guy or I'm the kind of girl or we're the kind of people. You know, we, you know, this is the production of our, you know, we're full of ourselves and our accomplishments. We're very, we're not keenly grateful beyond that. The danger is we forget that the capacities that we have, the health that you have that enables you to work, the breath that you draw is a gift from God each day that your intelligence or your abilities and gifts, whatever you have, what do you have that you did not receive? Why do you differ from others? Is it because you've done something great to make yourself great? There's an acknowledgement here that every good gift is from God. And in a moment, it can be lost. If, and that's one of the ways that we see gift. Every time we see tragedy, it ought to remind us that tomorrow is not promised. You know, one illness, one accident, one misfortune, one moment, and we may not have it the way we did. Father, give us today your provision and your grace for another day. The daily confession of dependence, acknowledgement of God's goodness and God's provision and God's grace. It teaches us like Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.10 to acknowledge it is by the grace of God that I am what I am. And by the grace of God that I have what I have. Father in heaven, give us today. So we pray with a genuine sense of dependence upon God's grace for everything. It shapes our hearts, doesn't it? When you pray that every day and you have some of these things in your heart and in your mind, and every day you come with this acknowledgement and filling it out, doesn't it shape the way you think? And doesn't it shape your heart as you live each day? And one of the things it shapes us in is gratitude, knowing that God is the source of all things. And so every day as I'm aware that it is his provision, it is his grace, it makes us grateful people. When we don't live in the acknowledgement of God's goodness and God's provision, we're not always a grateful thankful, content people. And that's where we get discontent and we live in a sense of, of entitlement. Word thrown around America out there. 
But we always, the scripture points us to our own hearts. This kind of prayer gives glory to God as the creator, as the provider, as the giver. It humbles us. And it's only here that we become cheerful givers. Grateful for what God has given. In a sense, basking in his goodness and his giving every day. And so we become cheerful givers like our Father. And we live in that awareness every day. And the next priority then is he prays for our daily bread. Give us our bread daily. He, he prays for forgiveness. And we see again that these are our spiritual priorities for your spiritual life. You need spiritual provision and nourishment like a branch abiding in a vine, like gathering of manna every day. You need spiritual nourishment in the presence and the life of Christ who is the bread of life. We need that. We need forgiveness. We're going to need leading and protection in the spiritual battle. And so forgiveness, though, what are you saying? Here are your top three spiritual needs and prayers. And forgiveness centers the list. Our sin, our disobedience, our rebellion make us guilty. They make us deserving of punishment. It's what we earn, the wages of sin. But God's grace is offered to us through the atoning death of Jesus Christ, who has made a way of forgiveness. He is saying that one of the greatest human needs, not just before you know Christ, but even as we walk with him daily, that one of the deepest human needs is for forgiveness. But what he is saying is it's available to you every day. That's what the prayer is teaching us. It's available to us. And so God's grace has offered to us through the death of Christ on the cross where he bore our own sins in his body and he puts away the penalty, uh, you know, the debt. Forgive us our debts that we owe. He puts it away and makes a way of forgiveness, full, free pardon before God that we can stand before him without fear. Acts chapter 10, verse 43, it says this, everyone who believes in him, everyone who trusts him, puts their faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, believes that he is who he said he is, that he did what he said he did, and that he did it for us, and that we accept that everyone who believes in him receives, without exception, forgiveness of sins, pardon, that we may stand right before him, God judicially forgives us, but the problem is we don't stop sinning, do we? I wish it were so. <laughs> I wish it were so. Don't you? There sometimes you wish you could just throw the switch, never going to sin again. No more of those thoughts. No more of that criticizing. No more of that complaining. No more of the anger. No more of the whatever it is, the pride. No more of the whatever it is that you know in your own heart or that you do, you know, not going to fight with, you know, anymore. I'm not going to do. I wish. I'm not saying we don't grow in those things, but there is an acknowledgement here that we don't stop sinning, that we continue to struggle, that we foul our hearts with thoughts, words, and deeds on a daily and regular basis. And we need a fresh application. We need a fresh experience of his forgiveness, his cleansing, 
Create in me a clean heart, O God. I mean, we continue to need that every day, don't we? Isn't one of the fundamental needs that you have as you start a new day is a clean heart to start over, to start fresh, to begin again, to follow him today, to want to honor him today? But we can't do that if we're always feeling fouled and he's unhappy with us. And we're, you know what I mean? You can't, you can't question all of that and move forward. And so he offers us this. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins. He's just to do it on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Ongoing need that we need. So I can go forward, I can strive again, so I can make progress. Cleansing. It's a fundamental need to keep short accounts with God. Now there is, some people would say, you know what, when you accepted Jesus that, um, and trusted Christ, which we just talked about, and when you do that, he forgives you, and there's a full judicial pardon of all of your sin, past, present, and future, you're made right with God. And so there are some people who say, because that is true, because you've re- received this judicial pardon forever by the grace of Christ, we don't need to ask for forgiveness anymore because we already have it. And in one sense, there's truth in that. As far as God stands in the law court of God, in terms of heaven and hell, salvation, there is a sense in which when we come to Christ and receive his pardon, it's a once and done deal. But what we don't always recognize, that even though that is, in a sense, established and done, is that there's still the aspect of relationship. God the judge has pardoned us, but God our Father can still be at odds with us. Just as we can be at odds with each other and with our fathers. In other words, when we wrong each other, if I have wronged you, we have to be reconciled. Because you're mad at me. I've hurt your feelings. I've offended you. I have done some, you know, that there is a second layer that what Jesus is, in other words, this is a family prayer. This isn't a prayer for salvation. Anybody who can start the prayer with our fathers already in the family, judicially pardoned, standing right with God. You knew not, this is not a prayer that you wouldn't lose your salvation. This is a prayer when it talks about, because it's, the forgiveness here is conditional, right, isn't it? Forgive us our debts as we forgive others. And so as a family prayer, as you come to God as his children, knowing that you have offended him, knowing that your hearts are foul, knowing that, you know, in the sense that we've muddied them up again today, you know, that we come to him asking for forgiveness. It's not like, save me again and save me again. And say, you were coming to say, God, I, I want to be right with you. I want a clean heart. I want to walk today with you. Forgive me for the ways I have offended. Forgive me. Forgive me for being the kind of guy who treats my wife like that sometimes. Forgive me for being the kind of guy who has those thoughts and those feelings. Forgive me again and fill me with your spirit. In other words, you know, in some ways it's a prayer to be filled and renewed with his spirit. I want to be right and clean and keep short accounts with God, your father. Packer says those who live by God's forgiveness must imitate it. One whose only hope is that God will not hold his fault against him forfeits the right to hold others' faults against them. Right? You catch that? And those of us who live the hope and the desire and the trust and the promise that he will not hold his faults against us. How can we be those people who hold the faults of others against them? Do as you would be done 
by is the rule here. In other words, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You want God to forgive your sins? Do unto others as you would have even God do unto you. But here's the thing in it. And he says that the unforgiving Christian brands himself a hypocrite. Because we live by that grace. And every day we ask him to forgive us. All the while we harbor bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness. We withhold it. How can we ask for it? Well, we hold it in our hearts. He comes back to this. It's the only thing he comments on, interestingly, in verses 14 and 15 as he finishes his prayer. He goes back to this middle petition and he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't, then neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What I say here again is he's not talking about salvation. He's talking about relationship and worship in our walk with him. Remember the context is a family prayer. You are judicially forgiven and pardoned. But Jesus is telling you this. The state of your heart affects your relationship with him. It affects your worship. It does. And when our hearts are hard and bitter, it affects our relationship with him. It must, right? It must. When my heart is hard and bitter at home, it affects my relationships. It does. It just does. We know this. And that's what Jesus is acknowledging. He's telling us that bitter, gossipy, critical unforgiveness interferes with our ability to receive God's mercy and experience his grace. The chapter before this, same sermon, same sermon on the mountain. Matthew 5, 23 and 4, he says this. If you're offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift before the altar. It interrupts your worship, right? You're worshiping and you know your heart is hard or bitter or angry or hurt at somebody or whatever that is. And he says, and you're at the altar offering your gift and you are aware of this. And by God's grace, he would make you aware with it. He says it should. It interrupts your worship. Your worship can't... Go on, in a sense, until your heart is free and forgiveness flows. He is a God of reconciliation. He's given us a ministry of reconciliation, a gospel of reconciliation. He has reconciled us to himself. He has put us in a community of grace, and he calls us to be right with each other, to exercise and practice the gospel, which is to forgive those who don't deserve to be forgiven. Harboring bitterness and brokenness interferes with our ability to worship. And in a sense, God sends us away. He keeps us. He withholds the experience of his grace. I see people sometimes struggling and having a hard time worshiping. And I can blame so many different things. It was the lighting. It was the color of the paint on the wall. It was the wrong songs that day. Or it was... You know, it was the instruments, it was the people singing, they were off key. It was, you know, we have so many things that we can blame that, that I couldn't worship today and it's, it's somebody else's fault. People struggle with a sense of God's absence. And I didn't think he was here today. When all around them, people are worshiping. All around them, hearts are given over. All around them, all of that falls away and only they see the glory of God. And they worship. 
And the reality is that the, the impediment is not out there. The hardness of our own hearts. They keep us from experiencing God's forgiveness and his mercy in a way that sets us free. Because when you're experiencing that, you will worship. And when you don't, there's something wrong. But it's not out there. It's in here. That's why Paul says so often in all of his stuff when he makes his list of things to put off, he says, put off your bitterness, put off your gossip, put off your slander, put off all these things. These are signs and symptoms of a hard heart. They're signs and symptoms that you're out of step with God. It's signs and symptoms that your worship will be interrupted and broken. And Paul says, put them away. In Colossians 3.13, he says, if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, Father, forgive me as I have forgiven others. Forgive others even as the Lord has forgiven you. Do you see you can't even ask for his forgiveness? You can't ask for it if you're not doing it yourself, if you're harboring it in your own heart. The two go together. He says, let go of your critical, angry heart. It's hindering your worship. Your unforgiveness is a taint on everything. To be gracious forgivers, we need to be in daily contact with our own constant need for mercy. I truly believe this is the greatest impediment to our forgiving others. We are full of ourselves. Because you must stand over and above to criticize and to put down, to do all of that. We have to live in constant contact. And that's what this prayer, Jesus is teaching you. Sit before God. Be on your knees before God every day and say, I am a sinner in need of your grace. And even as I long for your mercy, I give it to you. I give it away. Right? I, I unburden my heart with it just as you. You know that the two go together, but we have to be in touch with our own need. Or we will not be forgivers. The last priority, he says, is for strength and deliverance in the midst of a spiritual warfare. And that's what first and foremost that request says, right? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us of evil. And the first and foremost thing that it tells you is you are at war. We forget this. He says your top needs, if I give you three things to pray about for your life, you know, in your spiritual walk or whatever else, of the top three, here's the thing. You need to be praying every day about the war you are in. You need God to, to lead you in the right ways, and you need to be delivered in the places where you find yourself. You need God's grace day by day to fight the good fight and to win this war. Right? We need him. And do you see the whole thing? I need your bread and your provision and your grace for everything else. And I, I need your mercy and your grace every day. And I need, I need you to walk with me and to fight with me and for me and to lead me and to deliver me. Deliver me. And I would say this. When he says, lead us not into temptation, some people stumble there and think, would God ever lead me into temptation? To sin? And the short answer is, I would say, no, 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 no. I don't believe that that is what he is saying here. When you read temptation, the word there for temptation is translated several different ways, depending on the context throughout the New Testament. The word is often translated as trial or a test. Right? A testing of your faith. It's not the tempting of it per se, but the testing of it. The testing of it comes in many circumstances, does it not? When you suffer. When you suffer loss. 
When you go through difficulties, you lose a job, you're mad. There are so many different circumstances, sickness and persecution, difficulties of every kind. All of these things test us, our strength, our spiritual strength to endure. And so we have a capacity, these, these things, they do have a capacity to purge us. They do have the capacity to, to have benefits in our lives. But just because the fire of these circumstances may purge us doesn't mean we want to walk in the fire at least not very often. I don't know about you. Usually we're praying, Lord, help me to learn what I need to learn. Like, get out of the fire. Lead me not into these trials, these things that will test my faith. They can have beneficial results, but that doesn't mean that we go looking for it. One thing that we should be clear is he is not talking about temptation to sin. He's talking about trials in our circumstances. James chapter 1, 13 and 14 James writes this and he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. So whatever else your theology says, however else you're going to interpret it and understand it, just do this, this. Never say this. I'm being tempted by God. Don't say it. It's the wrong answer. Right? It's the wrong answer. God isn't tempted with evil and he doesn't tempt you to evil. Doesn't do it. So don't say it. Don't think it. Don't go there. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus knows this. There's one author to Scripture, and these things come from one mouth, the mouth of God. And he says, lead us not into circumstances that will try. Jesus does the same thing, does he not? He's in the garden. He's facing, he's facing a difficult circumstance. Torture and the cross and death and the wrath of God poured out on him for our sakes. And what does he pray? Deliver me. Right? Lead me not into, into this trial. If it's possible for this cup to pass, let it pass. Right? I'm not keen on the fire. And that's a very human Jesus. And then a very spiritual and lively Jesus says, but not my will. Thine be done. And that's the way the circumstances of life, we may say, you know, lead us not into such trials and, and difficulties. You know, and where you do, not my will be, yours be done. Where you do, deliver us from evil and the evil one. Let the victory be ours. All three of these are to sustain us in our spiritual lives. Material and spiritual sustenance, repentance, forgiveness, deliverance and spiritual warfare. The doxology, you notice, isn't here. When we sing it and when we pray it, it ends with, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. I love that line but it's not here, and it's not in the other version. It's not in the Bible. Um, It's early when you read the Didache, which is second century, shortly after the time of John and the apostles. Uh, Two of them are there, the power and the glory, or it's power and the kingdom. Two of them are there. But here's the thing, and, and this is where I think it's appropriate, and we end with this as it ends the prayer, that this doxology expresses our confidence in God's ultimate sovereignty, that he is able to deliver us from the evil one, but it's also a confidence that all the other prayers will be answered. The power, the kingdom, and the glory go to the glory of his name, right? The coming of his kingdom and the doing of his will. And so we're praying. It's a nice bookend, rounding out the prayer. And here's the thing where I think it's, it's fine to put it on there and let's pray it, because I think this prayer is meant to guide our praying, but to be filled out by our hearts. 
right? And I pray, Father, give me this day our daily bread. You could pray it off road and just check, 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 you know, pray it through quickly. I, don't, I never find myself able to pray this quickly. Father, give us this day our daily bread. I need Jesus in my life. Fill me with your spirit again, you know, you know come and, and, and strengthen me, and I need to know you and to love you. I want to walk with you today and, and, and serve you today. So come near, provide what I need. Each one of them, you should fill out. And so as I think to the end, you can fill it out. And mine is the kingdom and the power. Not my kingdom, not my glory. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So many of us wonder, as Jesus says and the scripture says elsewhere, pray according to God's will and you will be heard. Here it is, my friends. The will of God to be prayed. And he says, when you pray according to his will, you will be heard. Your father delights to answer prayer, and he delights to do these things. So let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, sitting on your throne over the circle of the earth, reigning is God. Thy kingdom come in my heart. Come reign here, King Jesus. Reign over me. Come, your will be done by me. Enable me and give me even the heart and the will to do your will. Not my will, but your will be done. Come, Lord Jesus, and give us this day our daily bread. Give us what we need that we may not be in want. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our sin, even as we let bitterness and anger And all of that that keeps spilling out of us, even as we let it go and forgive others, that we might have a fresh experience of your grace that would lead us to worship and lead us not into the fiery trial, into the temptation, the testing of our faith. And where you do, according to your will, deliver us. Deliver us from the evil one that we might persevere, that we might stand victorious as your people. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.